Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And then this person went on to say how he listened to our podcast episode, one of them, and there was way too much annoying laughing going on. And, you know, he just thought we'd want to know that we laugh way too much. And it's, um, it's annoying. And he might give us another chance and listen to another episode. <laughs> might give us a chance. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, no. I hope we got another chance. I, I wrote him back and I said, no, it's not going to get any better for you. Do not listen to any more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories of our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We are the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're excited to be back with our mailbag episode, and we have some really great questions that we'll be answering. What are those questions, Matt? Really great ones, Karen. <laughs> we'll be answering questions about Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska, as well as Indiana Dunes National Park in Indiana. And a listener was wondering about where to stay when visiting Great Basin National Park in Nevada. We'll also talk about a few international national parks that are in my wish bucket. And then switching gears completely, a listener asked us to share some of the nonfiction adventure books that inspire us. All this and more coming up next on Mailbag. Can you believe that 2021 is almost over? Yes, I can believe. It's been a long year. Yeah. (laughs) But it was a good year. We had some really great adventures, new stuff. We saw new stuff this year. We did. Did you have any favorites? Well, several favorites. I, I'm glad we got to float the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. That had been in the wish bucket for a long time. I was really looking forward to that, although the water levels were, were kind of low. Yeah, it was a little disappointing in that regard, but still an epic trip, lots of great scenery. Yeah, that was a really, really fun thing we did in July. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm glad we did it. Well, also, I mean, we, we hiked up to Granite Park Chalet in Glacier. That was a very unique experience. A little nervous about doing that hike because it's uh, a little exposed in areas and we had big packs on. But, uh, you know, if you watch where you're going, it's it's totally doable. I was a little nervous about sharing one room with John and Lolly <laughs> sleeping for, <laughs> was it two or three nights? And one that, little room with uh, with four bunks. Well, that worked out fine, mainly because we had read before, bring earplugs, which we did, and... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the walls are thin. It, it's not like you're just sleeping with the people you came with. In our case, John and Lolly, those walls are so thin. I could hear people breathing, literally breathing 
in the room next to us. I know. So put the so, ear, earplugs in and everything was fine. Yeah, basically you're sleeping with everyone. Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah so to speak. <laughs> I was trying to think about what my favorite hike of the year was. And I know we did a lot of really great ones. I think my favorite was probably the subway hike in Zion National Park. Yeah, that was a good one. I'm glad we got to do that also because we had been thinking about that for years and a little intimidated about how to get there because there's two different routes and... I always thought that the, you know, coming from above down to the subway was the only route you could go. Mm-hmm. And, and and we did the bottom up, which turned out to be fantastic and really interesting hike on the way up and a, and a great destination. Yeah, that was something. I think my second favorite one was probably in March when we hiked to Druid Arch in um, Canyonlands in the Needles District. Remember, it was snowing on us. It did. It's. I think we experienced all four seasons on that <laughs> hike and a snowstorm, which made some of the slick rock a lot slicker. Yes, <laughs> but it was great to it was great to see it. And actually, I think it was even better because the weather was kind of stormy at times and then the sun came out it was really that was an interesting hike i'm glad we we had a chance to do that yeah that was great and then what was really special for me and i know it was for you too was to go to the 63rd national park new river gorge with bob and sue it just seemed fitting that we would see this um, place with them and i think too what what made it even more special was because we have not been to a new national park since Pinnacles number 59 because when we went to the St. Louis Arch we had already been there um you know we had already been to White Sands we had already been to Indiana Dunes which we're going to talk about so this was brand new and with Bob and Sue it was fun to see it with them and to spend a few days with them and and to see that area we we live in the west and so we don't get to the eastern side of the country that often, particularly to, to go to outdoor places. Yeah, what a great trip. You know, we're, we're still in the planning stages for 2022. A lot of um, balls still up in the air, but uh, who knows where we'll get to. I think I think maybe we need to um, expand our horizons a little bit and branch out. We're going to branch out? What I mean is I think we should go back to Europe and see some of the national parks over there. How about it? Are you in? Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to branch into Europe. All right, and that is a segue into our first question of Mailbag. This question is from Cheryl, and she wrote to us, I wondered if you have traveled to many national parks outside of the U.S. I know you traveled to some national parks in Canada, like Glacier, but I wondered if there are other national parks on your bucket list from other countries. Before we started going to all the U.S. national parks, we did a fair amount of travel in Europe uh, when our kids were kind of... Middle school age, we took them a couple of times to show them, have them get that experience. Yeah, we we took them on trips to Europe. And then once they went off to college, we did more traveling in Europe. Unfortunately, we were more focused on eating and drinking in the cafes. Sidewalk cafes. was our <laughs> t- We were touring all the sidewalk cafes. <laughs> That's right. With our little passport stamp book. Oh, here's another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... And of course, you know, in Europe, you have all the the castles and the churches and the incredible art museums. So we did not get to many national parks. 
But we did go to one really great national park in Italy called, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this, called Cinque Terre. We were fortunate enough to go to that park, to visit that park before it really got famous or got discovered. Rick Steves had written about Cinque Terre and did some episodes uh, on his uh, television show about it, and it just blew up. People found it, and, and for good reason. It's spectacular park and hike along the coast. When we did that hike, gosh, I mean, we, we probably didn't see 10 other hikers that whole time. We were trying to remember what years we were there because we've done it a couple of times. And to the best of our knowledge, it was about 2005 and then probably again in 2007. Now, if you're not familiar with the Cinque Terre, it is located on the northwestern coast of Italy, kind of um, between what, Genoa and Naples, P I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Pisa, that area. So the Cinque Terre National Park, Cinque Terre means five five lands. So there's five small towns along the coast that the park connects. You got Monterosso in the north, then Vernazza, Cornelia, Manarola, and Rio Maggiore, and I think that's the furthest south. Mm -hmm. And so what we did, we we were staying in Monterosso. We started the hike there, and then we hiked to all of the the, the other four towns. And when we got, we, we stopped and visited each, each little town, had, had lunch in one of them. And then when we got to Rio, Rio Maggiore, we took a ferry boat back to Monterosso. And that was cool. Yes. So that, that was mm -hmm. a great day. And uh, yeah, it was inside a national park. So it was a protected area. And yeah. Now you can also take the train and you can also take a bus. So if you want to hike the whole thing like we did, it's about a seven-mile hike from the north to the south. And some of it is really paved and easy. You know, people are pushing their strollers along. And it's then, really paved. It's <laughs> yes. not just paved. It's, it's really paved. Is that what I said? Really yeah, paved. it's really paved. <laughs> I like the really paved parts. Yes, I know the you The semi-paved <laughs> parts are a little tough. <laughs> because the other parts are... Very steep, very rugged. You're sort of climbing up, I won't say a mountain, but definitely a steep hill. And um, that's the part that's to the north. So we did it north to south. We got the rugged, steep parts in first and then ended up at the really paved areas at the, at the southern tip. But the thing I love about it is these five towns that you hike through are all perched on the edge of the ocean with these incredible views and they are just darling little towns. You can stop, you know, if it's morning and you're not ready for a drink yet, you can get your cappuccino. Um, and then we just stopped at every little town and got something to eat or drink and we wandered around. It's going to take you an entire day if that's what you do. It is a picturesque hike mm -hmm. is what it is. There are parts of it I remember you're walking through people's vineyards. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think the park is kind of intermingled with private land. But anyway, that that's a beautiful one. Now, when we did it, again, this has been a while, there was um, someone at the beginning of the trail selling tickets, literally sitting there. And it wasn't much. I don't remember what we paid, maybe 5, 10 euro. But now I believe you can buy your tickets ahead of time. But you do need a ticket to hike this trail. Also, uh, Cinque Terre was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1997. But I would say, as far as our bucket list destinations, I want to go back to Europe. I'd love to go to the Dolomites. There are some national parks up in that area. I'd also like to see some national parks in Switzerland and the Swiss Alps. So definitely 
definitely in my bucket would be some some of those national parks to visit. It's a bottomless bucket, Karen. <laughs> sounds like. But see, that's the good thing, Matt, because that keeps that keeps me going. <laughs> good. <laughs> So that's so, that one. Yeah. So thanks for your question, Cheryl. All right. What's our next question, Karen? Let's go to a question from Diane and to Alaska. Diane wrote to us, I'm listening to your podcast on Denali again, and you mentioned going to Wrangell St. Elias National Park, wondering what it was like and what did you do there? Are there hiking trails that are well marked? I'm not interested in bushwhacking through the park. Any suggestions slash recommendations you could give us would be appreciated. All right. First of all, Wrangell St. Elias, it's huge. It's the largest national park in the system at 13.2 million acres. It's actually larger than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Switzerland combined. <laughs> and it's mostly wilderness. I love how they always throw Switzerland in as a measurement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems like we see that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's bigger than Yellowstone and Yosemite. And, and oh, by the way, also Switzerland. Oh, right, right. Three random places. Now, in Wrangell St. Elias, there are only two roads that lead into the park. And both of these roads are pretty rough and unpaved. Uh, the most traveled of these two roads is the infamous Road to McCarthy, which is a, a 60-mile gravel road that dead ends about a half mile west of the little tiny town of McCarthy that has a population somewhere under 100 people. That was a pretty rough road. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think in, in spots we were going much more than 10 or 15 miles an hour. And, the, and that road... It originated in 1909 as a railway built to support the Kennecott copper mines. So when the large-scale mining ended in 1938, most of the rails were salvaged for scrap iron. And in 1971, a new bridge was built over the Copper River, and the rail bed was covered with gravel, and it, and it created the road that's there today. Yeah, and that road is an adventure in and of itself. Yeah, it really is. When we had planned that trip, we knew that it was a 60-mile unpaved road, and we're thinking, well, we've been on unpaved roads before. How bad could it be? Well, it, was, it, it was pretty bad. It's really unpaved. Yes, it's, it's <laughs> really unpaved. And it's it, when we went, it was washboarded out, and mm -hmm. there were times where we literally couldn't go over 10 miles an hour. I usually, on those kinds of roads... I go faster because you can usually hit a speed where you kind of just go right over the top of the washboards and, and you can kind of find a speed where it's actually not as bumpy. Couldn't do that on this. I mean, we would have shook the car to pieces. Right. And we did have a rental car, as most people would who are who are traveling to Alaska. Now, I looked on the Park Service website to see if they had any uh, current updates, because we haven't been there since 2010. They say that the road is drivable for most rental cars, and they say expect it, expect it to take you two hours each way. So, you know, that's going 30 miles per hour. That That's pretty good clip. I don't think we were going it, that fast. It took us a lot longer than yeah. two hours each way. It did. And one note, they are obviously talking about summer travel only. Uh, in the winter, I wouldn't even go close to it. I don't think they maintain that road in the winter. The people who live in McCarthy, I believe, get out by either snow machine or dog sled. So don't even think about going in the winter. So what's at the end of the road? Well, at the end of the road is a parking lot. And then you park there, you cross over a bridge, which is over the Kennecott River, and it's a half-mile walk to McCarthy, which is a town that sprang up in the early 1900s. 
McCarthy was a place where minors could gamble and drink. And since it wasn't allowed anywhere near near Kennecott, the town of Kennecott. Yeah, it was the vice town. It was. So it was they the say. Sin, the original Sin City. <laughs> That's right. McCarthy, which is an interesting old town. And then you can take a little shuttle five more miles to the Kennecott Mines. Right. And that's that's very interesting. Great history, a lot of well-preserved buildings. You, you really get a sense of what it was like living there when those mines were working. Mm-hmm. The National Park Service has done a great job rehabilitating some of those buildings. Their visitor center is in what used to be like a general store. They have made it look as authentic as I think it did back then. Uh, so yeah, very charming little area to walk around and see what uh, a mining town from the early 1900s look like. Well, from 1911 to 1938, nearly $200 million worth of copper was processed. At the peak of operations, about 300 people worked in the mill town and another two to 300 in the mines. That's right. And in addition to the general store there now, there is a post office that has exhibits. And also you can see the general manager's office, the Blackburn School, a recreation hall, refrigeration plant, railroad depot, power plant, and residential cottage as well. And I think when we visited, we saw all those. Mm Mm-hmm. So from that point, we wanted to do a hike, and we could only find one maintained trail, and that was to Root Glacier. We did. We hiked down to the edge of the Root Glacier, and we didn't have crampons or really, I don't think we even had trekking poles. And, you know, it's a glacier in the, in the summertime, I don't know. I think I'd want to go with a guide. Because yeah. uh, you don't know where the crevasses are. You don't know how stable it is. You don't want to just, you know, be going out there on mm-hmm. on ice in the middle of the summer uh, that might be unstable. We did see other people hiking out there. It looked like they were with a guided group, though, and they had crampons on, and they I think they even had helmets on. I mean, they looked like they were very well equipped, which we weren't. Right, that, and <laughs> that, that would be a fun thing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, another fun thing to do would be to, to stay in the town of McCarthy. Yes, there is an inn, or maybe even two inns, where you can rent a room, and we were happy to find a saloon in town where we got a beer and something to eat. Yeah. Even though it's a huge park, a lot of what people do there is look at the history. Mm-hmm. Unless you're really going into mm-hmm. the backcountry, you need a guide. You probably need, for a lot of those things, you need a plane to take you in, a bush a bush plane to take take you to drop you off to a lot of these destinations. It's not really a um, it's not really a do it yourself park. It's not, unless you're extremely experienced. I don't think we mentioned that the the hike we did, the trail to Root Glacier, was one and a half miles each way. Um, And it was a very well-maintained trail. So that was a great little hike that you could do, Diane. However, I don't think there are any more trails there. At least we didn't see any. So it's not really a hiking park unless you want to bushwhack. Yeah, and if you're going to go out at all into the wild, even on the maintained trail there, like this is bear country. Oh, yeah. So you really need to know what you're doing, take your bear spray, and all of, all of those precautions when you're in bear country. Mm-hmm. I would say that this is a great day trip for anyone to add on if, if you're going to see Denali. 
I would tack this on because even though the road is a little bit rough to get to McCarthy, the scenery is beautiful. Huge mountains and rivers. And we saw a black bear wandered right in front of our car. Remember that? That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the combination of the history that you'll find back in Kennecott and the scenery, I think it's definitely worth a day trip to see Wrangell St. Elias that way. Okay. Thanks for your question, Diane. Okay, what's next? Let me see, Matt. Our next question comes from Stephen Laurie. We have a question about places to stay near Great Basin National Park in Nevada. We're thinking about adding a stop there at the end of a Utah trip next May. Any suggestions or details on what you've done would be appreciated. Thanks, and rock chalk. Rock chalk Jayhawks. Yeah, fellow Kansas Jayhawks. Jayhawks go to the front of the line when it comes to <laughs> mailbag. Yeah. I should have put this one very first. Yeah. <laughs> If you haven't been to Great Basin National Park, it is in eastern Nevada, and it's very close to the Utah border. So I think a lot of people tack it on to their Utah trips as well. Yeah, about the middle of the state, north and south. Yeah, it's right outside the town of Baker, Nevada, which is teeny tiny. (laughs) Like, it is literally a postage stamp-sized town, Mm -hmm. and it has the little uh, tiny motel there, the Stargazer Inn. And we we stayed there when we visited Great Basin National Park for the first time. It wasn't the Stargazer Inn. It was something else. Right. I think it was for sale when we stayed there. And then apparently it was sold and renamed. But we drove by just actually a month or so ago. It looked just as cute and charming as it did when we stayed there. It's very tiny. Yeah, it's small. Uh-huh. But, but when we stayed there, and this was, what, 10, 11 years ago, it was fine. It was It was. And right next door to the, I don't know how many rooms they have, not very many, there is a kind of a general store building that's also their restaurant. Again, very tiny. And I I remember we had a really good dinner in there. Yeah. Baker, Nevada is really the the closest place. If you want to get up early in the morning, go into the park. It's the Stargazer Inn is, is one of your only choices. You also have the Whispering Elms Motel and RV and Tent Campground in Baker. Uh, Uh So there's a couple of spots that you could spend the night. Yeah, we have not stayed at the Whispering Elms, so we cannot say anything about it, but it is there also. So you could check that out um, as a possibility, or you could do what we have also done is we have stayed farther away. So the next closest town is Ely, Nevada, and it has a lot more choices as far as hotel rooms. And it's a beautiful drive from Ely to the park. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's desolate. It's, you know, op- open country, but it's a beautiful drive. And and it's yeah, about what, an hour? It's about an hour drive. And so we, we have, in the last couple of times we visited that park, we've stayed in Ely, driven in in the morning, done something in the park, and then typically we're on our way to the southern Utah parks, and so then oftentimes we'll then drive to Cedar City, Utah. Right, and Cedar City is right on I-15, and it has a ton of your basic standard hotels, you know, Hampton Inns and Marriott's and Ramada's and all those things. So that's another option is stay in Cedar City, Utah. It is about a a two-and-a-half-hour drive from the park. As far as things to do in the park, my absolute favorite thing to do in the park is to drive up to the top of the scenic road, which dead ends, and do the bristlecone pine loop hike. And there you'll see some of the oldest living trees on the planet. And then you can continue from that hike. You can continue to hike to Wheeler Peak Glacier, the only glacier in the state of Nevada. I know. How about that? 
We've done this hike a couple of times in the fall, including just this past October we were there, and the the leaves were changing colors, and it was absolutely beautiful. Now, just one thing to note, they do close the scenic drive for the winter once it starts snowing. I think usually by November, this road is closed, so if you're planning to visit, you might want to go before then. Great park. I hope you guys do have a chance to add it on to your Utah trip. Okay. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Moving on to the next question comes from Carrie, and she wrote, what are some of the books you read to plan and or inspire your travels? Guidebooks, I'm sure, but I'm also wondering if you have other favorites in the nonfiction categories. As a matter of fact, we do, Carrie. Hey, we should start a book club. We could start a book club. (laughs) We would put our books in it. (laughs) That's right. First of all, I have to say, Carrie, that we love to read nonfiction books. We love to read books about people out having adventures. And there are so many great ones out there. So we thought we would just go down the list of some of our recommendations. And our first recommendation, which, matter of fact, was inspiration, really, for our Dear Bob and Sue books is A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. Mm -hmm. And it's his recounting of hiking the Appalachian Trail. This book is basically, it's it's a comedy of errors. And Bill recounts everything that goes wrong for him on his journey. So if you're looking for an actual guidebook about hiking the AT, this isn't the one. We, we We just think he's a funny, humorous writer. It is. You know, it's the overweight, out of shape guy tries to go hike the Appalachian Trail. And uh, yeah, things go wrong. I think he just writes it in a very funny style. His humor is kind of something that inspires us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, A Walk in the Woods, is it's a good read. Yeah, we, we loved that one. Another one I really enjoyed was the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And this is a story about when she hiked a big section of the Pacific Crest Trail. So I thought that was fantastic. Beneath a Scarlet Sky. That was, is an amazing book. It's set in World War II. It's it's a historical fiction book, although the only reason they call it historical fiction is the author wasn't able to interview everyone of the characters in the book, and so he can't say for sure that all of the details were accurate, but I, I think it's more history than fiction. Mm-hmm. And But it's, it's set in the Alps, in northern Italy and Switzerland. At the kind of the beginning of the book or the f- early parts of the book, he does a lot of uh, discussion about hikes that mm-hmm. he did. Right. The author is Mark Sullivan, and the story is basically about a young man in Milan who helps Jews escape over the Alps during World War II. 
All right. One of my favorites is called The River of Doubt. It's by Candace Millard. And this is an incredible story of when Theodore Roosevelt went on a river trip in an unmapped tributary of the Amazon. And this was after he was president. Yes, yes. And he almost died many times. This is the adventure story to end all adventure stories. My mouth was hanging open the entire time of what he went through. You guys have to read this book. No Secret Service. No. No. I mean, I think he was was out there having a true adventure. And the amount of um, plants and animals and natives who tried to kill them is astounding. So I would definitely recommend this book. And the book that inspired us to go on our dory trip on the Colorado River is a favorite of all of ours. It's called The Emerald Mile by Kevin Fidarko. Yeah, that's a very interesting book. And also, uh, he talks a lot about the history of the Glen Canyon Dam how it was built, why it was built. Uh, It's just a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. It's about the fastest boat ride in history in 1983 down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon by boatman Kenton Grua. So a fascinating, really interesting story. And, And probably an event that won't ever be repeated. Right. Now, one of our favorite authors is John Krakauer. He's written a lot of great nonfiction books, but two that we thought were fascinating were Into Thin Air, about the 1996 disaster on Mount Everest, and Into the Wilderness, uh, the story of a young man's attempt to live in the wilderness of Alaska, and that was actually right near Denali National Park. He's a great author in terms of just really engages you in the story. Another one is Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. This is the Lewis and Clark expedition. Oh, but my the, gosh. the story's fascinating. And, yes. And Stephen Ambrose was, was a great author. That makes me want to try to follow in their footsteps and, and retrace the, the Lewis and Clark is expedition. That right? Put that in the bucket, Karen. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll put when that one in. When you get back from Europe, we'll, we'll do that. Another great outdoor adventure story is called Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. That is an amazing story. I know we're running out of of superlatives to Uh talk about these uh, adventures, but Joe, yeah, he was down in the Andes, and we won't spoil the story for you, but got caught in a in a tough situation while climbing a mountain, had to basically self-rescue, and it was very, very fortunate to even survive. And we met Joe. When Matt was still working in the corporate world, uh, he had a business conference, and the keynote speaker was Joe Simpson. And he told his story in front of the audience, and he had all kinds of incredible pictures that he showed, and such a fascinating story. Yeah, and then about two hours later, I was walking through the hotel, and I see him sitting at the bar all by himself. He was waiting for his flight. And I went and sat next to him and and bought him a beer and talked to him for a long time. And he was a really great guy, very down to earth. And we talked more about his story. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil this for anyone, but I think one of the most interesting things about this story is that it combines adventure with a moral dilemma. And it's one of those things is what would you do if you were caught in this situation and you're faced with an impossible choice? Oh, Um, yeah. yeah, It really is. Yeah, definitely read this book. You will love it. All right. We have two more. Unbroken. I know a lot of you have read that. It was made into a movie. It's by Laura Hillenbrand, the story of one um, airman's fight for survival during World War II. And then a book that I've now read literally 
four times is A Terrible Glory by James Donovan. And it is the story of Custer and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really taken me like four readings to fully understand what happened leading up to that, that battle. And that's a really great history. And I think a really fair description of what was going on during that time period that led up to that war. Yeah. And what's so amazing, too, is when you go to the National Park Service site in Montana, the battle comes to life because they have the markers where soldiers fell and where the Indians fell and you're driving through. And the book is a wonderful accompaniment to the story uh, that actually happened there at this National Monument. If you're going to visit Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, definitely read this book before you go. Yep. So, Carrie, I'm not sure if this exactly answered your question. The thing is, the inspiration for our trips and for what we do, yes, some of it comes from some of these books like the Italian Alps and the hiking there and, you know, some of the PCT sections in Cheryl Strade's book. But mostly, I think I mentioned this before, our inspiration actually comes from uh, social media, from Instagram photos of lakes and mountains and trails that we see and that we think, oh my gosh, where is that place we have? to go see that. So that's where most of our inspiration comes from. But these books are wonderful to read. Great stories from very adventurous people. That's right. Okay, Karen, what else? What other questions do we have? Okay, we have a question from John and Christy. And they asked us, have you visited Indiana Dunes National Park? Since this park was added after you finished your original trip to all the national parks, I'm wondering if you have visited it yet. (laughs) Well, it just so happens back in 2013, we did visit it when it was a national lakeshore. That's right. And we actually lived in Chicago for a year for I had a job and we had an apartment there. So one Saturday, we drove over to Indiana Dunes to check it out. Yeah, it's only about an hour drive from Chicago, so it's very close. Now, this park sits on 15 miles of shoreline on the southern shore of Lake Michigan. Yeah, if you're visiting Indianapolis or Chicago, it's a a great day stopover, I think. Karen, do you know anything (laughs) about the history of Indiana Dens? Are you looking at the outline and you're seeing my bold history (laughs) channel? Right there. I'm I'm glad that you're now (laughs) marking these parts of the outline as History Channel so I could go do something else. I I have to go shovel the driveway. So you tell people about the history of Indiana Dunes. Well, now, see, this is fascinating, and I did not know this. I was just looking up to find out when it became a national lakeshore, and here's what I found out. So way back in 1916, Stephen Mather, who was the first director of the National Park Service, wanted to make this area a national park. He wanted to call it Sand Dunes National Park. So he held hearings in Chicago to gauge public sentiment, and everyone who attended was in favor of this becoming a national park. But then, unfortunately, the country entered World War I, and the priorities changed. So instead of having revenues go towards national parks, they were now targeted for national defense. And as our nation went from a world war into a depression, the hopes faded that this would ever become a national park. But I don't think the story ends there, Karen, because that's just that just brings us up to the World War One. So we're we're within a hundred years of now. 
Now, while all this was going on in 1926, it had become Indiana Dunes State Park. But at the time, it was small, and people still wanted it to become a national park. I'm going to fast forward up to 1966 because we don't have time to go into everything that happened in those 40 years. But uh, in 1966, it finally became Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, and several expansion bills increased the size of the park to 15,000 acres. Then in February of 2019, Congress authorized the name change to Indiana Dunes National Park, our 61st National Park. And finally, 103 years after Stephen Mather's efforts for it to become a national park, it finally happened. So I, I think our visit was official. Yes, we, I think we, so we've too. We've been there. Mm-hmm. We've hiked there. Matter of fact, we hiked Mount Baldy. We did hike up Mount Baldy. It's a 125-foot sand dune. Yes. I can remember every sand dune I've ever hiked up. (laughs) Every step of every sand dune. And the reason it's called Mount Baldy is because it is nothing but sand. It is bald. It's a dune. Yeah. But what was interesting for us is we, we hiked that in 2013, and literally, I think a week later... It wasn't our fault. No, this had nothing to do with us. We saw on the news that a six-year-old boy hiking the same trail, hiking up Mount Baldy, fell into a hole in the sand, and he was buried more than 10 feet underground for many hours before being rescued. So that could have been us. It it could have been us, but it was actually a poor little six-year-old boy named Nathan who was buried under the sand for hours and hours. So how did it work out for Nathan? He was... He was fine. And he still is fine. Yes. He has made a full recovery. And now, gosh, now Nathan would be what? About 14? I have no idea how old (laughs) Nathan would be right now. It's the pop quiz in the middle of the episode. I remember they closed the trail for a long time trying to figure out what in the world happened. And researchers finally found out that These holes, and I think other holes have appeared, they were once buried tree trunks that had decayed under the sand and left an open air pocket. So you could literally be walking along the sand and step into an air pocket and disappear. Yet another reason why we don't have to hike any more sand dunes. I agree. (laughs) I think we're done with the sand dunes. (laughs) And uh, because of this, you can only hike Mount Baldy on a ranger-led tour. They won't let you do it on your own any. More. No, as they shouldn't. Right. right. So that's what we did when we were there. Now there are several beaches you can go to. I have to say we were somewhat surprised to find out this, this area had become a national park. It doesn't have a national park pristine feel to it. It's not like a self-contained park. The parkland is scattered throughout homes and businesses, power plants, steel mills. It's very sectionalized, I would say. And we were never sure when we were in the park and when we were out of the park. And I would say, you know, if you're in the area, it's definitely worth stopping. If you're in Chicago or Indianapolis, or if you're within 100 or 200 miles of the park, I think it's interesting to see. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a destination park that you would spend, that you know, that you would drive to from the East Coast or the West Coast. It's not that kind of a park. But I think it's definitely a boon for the locals who live there to have this place that's, you know, they're they're preserving the land um, and the landscapes. They have a place for people to to recreate, which is always a win-win. Yeah. So yes, yes, we've been there. 
All right, Karen, what else do we got? We got any other questions? We have one last question. All right. This one, I saved this one for last. <laughs> this is from Megan, and she wrote, I saw recently one of your Instagram posts where you were wearing masks in Antelope Canyon, and someone made a disparaging comment about you wearing masks outdoors. Are you bothered by internet trolls and haters? <laughs> no, we really like it. We enjoy it. We just were waiting for the next stupid comment from somebody. Yeah, the mask comments are just ridiculous. It like, is. Like, we were on Navajo land. It was their rules. They require masks. We're following the rules. And then people are wondering, like, I think he used the word, like, are you stupid yeah. for wearing a mask mm-hmm. or simple? Wearing or a mask Yeah, yeah, we're stupid for following the rules. Anyway, social media is a place where people, I, I think, feel free to be anonymous and, and say rude things that uh, they, they probably wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. First of all, I would say overall, I think the people who follow us on social media and the people who listen to our podcast are fantastic. And we get almost nothing but kind and generous remarks. And we're very grateful for that. Occasionally, there is a troll, there is a hater that comes in. And I would like to say I'm not bothered by it. I think what bothers me more than the actual comment is the fact that there are people like that out in the world who just feel like it's okay to say mean things to people. You know, I mean, that's what bugs me. Yeah, I would say overall, we're pretty lucky in terms of of the comments we get. I think compared to other people who have social media accounts and have a lot of followers, I mean, we don't have a ton, but we have enough. I, I think the percentage of negative comments we get is pretty small. Yeah, we did get an email from someone who started off the email by saying, I don't mean to be mean. And of course, of course you do, because (laughs) you're taking the time to sit down and write something mean. And then this person went on to say how he listened to our podcast episode, one of them, and there was way too much annoying laughing going on. And, you know, he just thought we'd want to know that we laugh way too much. And it's, um, it's annoying. And he might give us another chance and listen to another episode. <laughs> might give us a chance. I, I hope so. I, no. I hope we got another chance. I, I wrote him back and I said, no, it's not going to get any better for you. Do not listen to any more episodes. No, so it's going to be more laughing Yeah, now. way more laughing, inappropriate laughing. And I suggested there are a couple of very serious uh, National Park podcasts out there. So I gave him the names of those. But, you know, I think that the bottom line is those kinds of remarks and those kinds of comments, they say a lot more about the person who it's coming from than about the person who it's directed to. And I always used to tell our kids when they'd come home from school and they had been bullied or there'd been a hater, I used to say, you know, we should feel sorry for those people because the bottom line is no one who is out living a happy, great life, living their best life would take two seconds to say something mean to somebody, right? They just would never do it. They would never think to do it. So I think those people are probably very sad and maybe lonely. And when they see others out enjoying themselves and having fun, doing things that they wish they were doing, you know, I think maybe it rubs them the wrong way and they want to, um, they want to kill the joy. <laughs> so, so the answer is no, these comments don't bother you or the <laughs> sounds like they don't bother you at all. Yeah, I got to say they do kind of bother me. I don't want them to bother me. I realize that I don't know these people and I shouldn't give a... a, Can I say... (laughs) (laughs) Say whatever you want. 
<laughs> What's, what is it you always say, Matt? My F jar is empty. I have no Fs left to uh, give. Left to give. No. Yeah. Not not for the for them. Yeah. So anyway, it comes with the territory, right? I think you when you put yourself out there, then you you've got to take what uh, what comes back at you. But overall, I think we've been extremely fortunate, and we're very grateful to all of you for your very kind comments and your support and your your positive reviews and all of that good stuff. And tolerating our laughter. Tolerating the super annoying laughter. Yeah, inappropriate laughter. <laughs> See? That there was so go. inappropriate. That, that was just, why are you laughing? I don't know. There's it's no so, reason. No reason to be laughing at all. No more laughing. All right. Thanks for the question, Megan. All right. Is that it? We- That's it. I think that we should close out this episode at the end of the year with, um, let's just say what our New Year's resolution is. I don't do New Year's resolution. Last year, I think yours was eat more bacon. And I think you, you actually fulfilled that. Yeah. I, I, I probably ate a little bit more bacon. I, I could have done better. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, as with all resolutions, they, yeah. sometimes they fade. But well, New year, I, new you. I, I don't have any resolutions this year or next year, whatever. Karen, what is yours? I like to make resolutions for the both of us. (laughs) Okay. Go right ahead. I'd like to make a resolution of no more inappropriate laughing. Okay, that's never going to (laughs) happen. I was thinking that a great one to do would be dry January. (laughs) Dry? (laughs) Do you know what that is? I would like to stay dry. Yeah. No, it means no alcohol for the month of January. Are you in? Are you with me? I, I, won't, I, I won't have a drink until you do. How many days do you think we'll make it? I'd say four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe four thirty. <laughs> days. <laughs> I would say four thirty is the over under for that resolution. I'm afraid you're probably right about that. We appreciate all of you who've tuned into our mailbag episode today. If you have questions for future mailbag episodes, please send them to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming up in 2022. We don't know what any of them are, but I'm sure they'll be exciting once we figure them out. One thing we can guarantee. What's that? Lots more inappropriate laughing. Well, I think that's a given, don't you? Uh, Yes. Uh, We hope you all have exciting travel plans in store for 2022. Wishing you a very happy and healthy new year. 